There are a set of simple thinking tools that can improve your sense of how the world works. A vast majority of people have the wrong impression of the situation of things in the world. When questions about poverty and wealth, population growth, births, deaths, education, health, gender, violence, energy, and the environment are asked, people get the answers terribly wrong. The reason for the failure is not because the questions are complicated or tricky. The failure is due to some other factors that will be discussed subsequently. People do not upgrade their knowledge. It didn't matter the level of education of the people who were asked fact questions about the world. In fact, it seemed as though the higher one's level of education, the poorer the results. People have a worldview dated to the time when their teachers had left school. Overdramatic worldview is another problem with factfulness. Even when people have the latest facts and information, they tend to get the facts wrong because their worldview tends to blow things out of proportion. This tendency makes people provide negative answers to fact questions. Changing an overdramatic worldview is difficult because it is connected to how our brains work. Our brains often jump into swift conclusions without much thinking. We also have a craving for drama. This makes us interested in gossip and dramatic stories. Swift conclusions, sugar and fat, were once useful, some thousands of years ago, but we live in a very different world now. Dramatic instincts make normal life possible. But we need to control our drama intake in the same way we need to control our tendency to jump to conclusions and eat excess sugar and fat. Uncontrolled, our appetite for the dramatic goes too far, prevents us from seeing the world as it is, and leads us terribly astray. This book is a battle to fight devastating global ignorance. A battle to change people's way of thinking, calm their irrational fears, and redirect their energies into constructive activities. Data can be a source of mental peace because it helps us to understand that the world is not as bad as we think. You will learn to recognize overdramatic stories and how to practice factfulness. In the same way you take on a healthy diet and exercise, you can also learn to control your dramatic instincts. This will enable you to make better decisions, identify real dangers, and avoid constantly being stressed about the wrong things. In short, you will develop a fact-based worldview. If you are more interested in being right than thinking critically, this is not a book for you. If, however, you are willing to change your worldview and replace your instinctive reaction with a more critical and factual response to the world, then please read on. The idea of a divided world with a majority stuck in misery and deprivation is an illusion that is based on outdated data. Humans have about 10 dramatic instincts. The first of these is the gap instinct. The gap instinct is the irresistible temptation we have to divide all kinds of things into two distinct and often conflicting groups, with an imagined gap, a huge chasm of injustice, in between. It creates a picture in people's heads of a world split into two kinds of countries or two kinds of people. This instinct is a mega misconception because it has an enormous impact on how people misperceive the world. Some of the lines along which people divide the world are, them and us, the developing world, and, the developed world, rich and poor, west, rest, north, south, low, income, high, income, and so on. Journalists, politicians, activists, teachers, and researchers use these labels all the time. These labels are not inherently bad, provided they produce relevant pictures in people's heads and mean something with a basis in reality. However, data reveals that these labels have no substantive basis. Most of us are stuck with a completely outdated idea about the rest of the world. For example, in 1965, the developing countries recorded more child mortality, more than 5%, than the developed countries. 
Today, the situation is completely different. Child deaths are rare in the vast majority of countries. Poor developing countries no longer exist as a distinct group. More than 75% of the world's population lives in middle-income countries. Only 9% of the world lives in low-income countries. And low-income countries are much more developed than most people think. Unfortunately, the category where the majority of the people live does not exist in the divide mindset. It only exists in reality. In other words, there is no gap. Basically, those in middle and high income countries account for 91% of the world's population. This is a happy realization for humanitarians and a crucial realization for global businesses. Instead of the existing labels, a better replacement would be to divide the world into four income levels. Level 1, those who earn at most $2 per day. Level 2, those who earn between $2 and $8 daily. This accounts for about 3 billion of the world's population. Level 3, these people earn between $8 and $32 daily. About 2 billion people live here. Level 4, these are the high income earners who earn at least $32 daily. The gap instinct is very strong because human beings have a strong dramatic instinct toward binary thinking. Dividing the world into two distinct sides is simple and intuitive, and also dramatic, because it implies conflict, and we do it without thinking, all the time. The warning signs of an overdramatic gap story that triggers the gap instinct are, comparison of averages, comparison of extremes, and the view from up here. Comparison of averages is a tendency to mislead ourselves by focusing on the gap between two single numbers, and missing the overlapping spreads that make up each average. Comparison of extremes is an attraction for extreme examples, richest and poorest, that rarely help understanding. The view from up here is the use of a different context to judge a situation. For example, in the United States, people are classified as below the poverty line even if they live on level 3. Factfulness is recognizing when a story talks about a gap, and remembering that this paints a picture of two separate groups, with a gap in between. The reality is often not polarized at all. To control the gap instinct, look for the majority. Beware of comparison of averages, comparison of extremes, and the view from up here. There is usually an overlap in the spreads with no existing gap. In all groups of people, or countries, there are some at the top and at the bottom with an unfair difference. But the majority is usually somewhere in between. Looking down from above distorts the view because everything else looks equally short. This is not usually the case in reality. Beyond living memory, for some reason we avoid reminding ourselves and our children about the miseries and brutalities of the past. Apart from the gap instinct, we also have a negativity instinct, our instinct to notice the bad more than the good. This instinct is activated by three things, the misremembering of the past, selective reporting by journalists and activists, and the feeling that as long as things are bad, it's heartless to say they are getting better. This instinct is behind the second mega-misconception, that things are getting worse. While it is true that the planet is struggling to have financial stability, peace, and protected natural resources, the notion that things are getting worse will not help in the struggle. What the world needs is an international collaboration based on a shared and fact-based understanding of the world. The current lack of knowledge about the world is the most concerning problem of all. In a survey of people spread across 30 countries, it was found that the majority of people think the world is getting worse. It is easy to be aware of all the bad things happening in the world. It's harder to know about the good things. 
The basic facts about the world's progress are so little known because people have a worldview that is so much more negative than reality. It is comforting, as well as inspiring, to learn that the world is much better than you think. For instance, in the last 20 years, the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty has almost halved. From the four levels described earlier, it is enlightening to note that level one is where all of humanity started. It's where the majority lived until 1966. Extreme poverty was the rule, not the exception. However, there has been a sharp decline in extreme poverty in the last 20 years from 29% to just 9%. Back in 1800, life expectancy everywhere in the world was roughly 30 years, today, it is above 70. The misconception that the world is getting worse is very difficult to maintain when we put the present in its historical context. Globally, there are at least 32 improvements that have been made, 16 of these are bad things that are decreasing, while the other 16 are good things that are increasing. The bad things that are decreasing are, legal slavery, oil spills, expensive solar panels, HIV infections, children dying, battle deaths, death penalty, leaded gasoline, plane crash deaths, child labor, deaths from disaster, nuclear arms, smallpox, smoke particles, ozone depletion, and hunger. Conversely, 16 new things are on the increase, new movies, protected nature, women's right to vote, new music, science, harvest, literacy, democracy, child cancer survival, girls in school, monitored species, electricity coverage, mobile phones, water, internet, and immunization. The Swedish author and journalist, Lasse Berg, wrote an excellent report from rural India in the 1970s. When he returned 25 years later, he could see that the living conditions had improved. When Lassa showed the villagers the 1970s pictures of earthen floors, clay walls, and half-naked children, they couldn't believe the pictures were taken in their neighborhood. They were in denial. They were too busy being in the moment that they forgot how things used to be. Selective reporting makes us hear more about diseases and disasters than ever before. Improved reporting has made surveillance of suffering easier. Activists and lobbyists make every dip in a trend appear to be the end of the world. Each time something horrific or shocking happened, a crisis was reported. The majority of people, most of the time, believe that violent crime is getting worse. When people say things are getting worse, they are not really thinking. Instead, they are feeling. They feel admitting that things are better now than before is equal to saying everything is fine. How can we help our brains to realize that things are getting better? The solution is to keep two thoughts in our heads at the same time, that things can be both bad and better. Also, it helps to constantly expect bad news. This will prevent you from being carried away into dystopia on a daily basis. When we hang on to a rose-tinted version of history, we deprive ourselves and our children of the truth. Don't censor history. The evidence about the terrible past is scary, but it is a great resource. Factfulness is recognizing a negativity bias and countering it by expecting bad news, distinguishing between a level e.g. bad and a direction of change e.g. better, striking a balance between good news and bad news, noticing gradual improvements instead of periodic dips only, understanding that more news does not mean more suffering, and guarding against a tendency to glorify the past. The only proven method for curbing population growth is to eradicate extreme poverty and give people better lives, including education and contraceptives. The argument that we must save the planet for future people often demands that we ignore the suffering of people today. It asks us to choose between our hearts and our heads.
It stems from the straight-line instinct, which is the third mega-misconception that assumes that an increasing trend will continue if left unchecked. This assumption is not true and the argument has no base. There are 2 billion children in the world today, aged 0 to 15 years old. According to the UN, there will be 2 billion children in the world by the year 2100. This statistic stands in stark contrast to the false idea that the world population is increasing and will continue to increase. Is the UN wrong or have we been caught in a straight-line instinct? While it is true that roughly a billion people will be added to the world population over the next three years, it is a misconception to think that this increase will continue at this rate. Two examples explain this, the total human population at 8000 BC stood at 5 million people. For 10,000 years, the number increased slowly until it reached 1 billion in the year 1800. In 130 years, the next billion were added, and in under 100 years, 5 billion were added. The second example is a growing child. Between birth and the first six months, the growth rate is rapid but it begins to slow down as the child matures. The UN experts have also predicted that the curve of world population will flatten out somewhere between 10 and 12 billion people. The reason is because there will be more adults aged between 15 and 74 by 2100. The separation of the growth rate of adults and children debunks the straight-line instinct. Why will there be more adults than children? As billions of people left extreme poverty, most of them decided to have fewer children. They no longer needed large families for child labor on the small family farm. And they no longer needed extra children as insurance against child mortality. Women and men got educated and started to want better educated and better fed children, and having fewer of them was the obvious solution. In practice, that goal was easier to realize, thanks to the wonderful blessing of modern contraceptives, which let parents have fewer children without having less sex. The best way of controlling the instinct to always see straight lines, whether in relation to population growth or in other situations, is simply to remember that curves naturally come in lots of different shapes. Many aspects of the world are best represented by curves like an S, or a slide, or a hump, or doubling lines, and not by a straight line. To understand a phenomenon, we need to make sure we understand the shape of its curve. By assuming we know how a curve continues beyond what we see, we will draw the wrong conclusions and come up with the wrong solutions. Our natural fears of violence, captivity, and contamination make us systematically overestimate these risks and underestimate the real dangers. Fear can be useful, but only if it is directed at the right things. The fear instinct is a terrible guide for understanding the world. It makes us give our attention to the unlikely dangers that we are most afraid of, and neglect what is actually riskier. Natural disasters account for only 0.1% of all deaths annually. Plane crashes stand at 0.001%, nuclear leaks, 0%, murders, 0.7%, and terrorism, 0.05%. None of them kills more than 1% of the people who die each year, and still they get enormous media attention. We have an attention filter that protects us against the noise of the world. Without it, we would constantly be bombarded with so much information, we would be overloaded and mentally paralyzed. Unfortunately, our attention filter has a bias for information that sounds dramatic. So, we end up paying attention to information that fits our dramatic instincts and ignoring information that does not. Of all our dramatic instincts, it seems to be the fear instinct that most strongly influences what information gets selected by news producers and presented to us consumers. 
Certain fears are hardwired in our brains for obvious evolutionary reasons. Fears of physical harm, captivity, and poison once helped our ancestors survive. In modern times, perceptions of these dangers still trigger our fear instinct. These fears are still constructive for people on levels 1 and 2. For example, it is practical, on levels 1 and 2, to be afraid of snakes. 60,000 people are killed by snakes every year. There's no hospital nearby, and if there is, you can't afford it. On levels 3 and 4, where life is less physically demanding and people can afford to protect themselves against nature, these biological memories cause more harm than good. On level 4, for sure the fears that evolved to protect us are now doing us harm. The media cannot resist tapping into our fear instinct. Here's the paradox, the image of a dangerous world has never been broadcast more effectively than it is now, while the world has never been less violent and more safe. Fears that once helped keep our ancestors alive, today help keep journalists employed. It isn't the journalist's fault and it isn't driven by media logic among the producers so much as by attention logic in the heads of the consumers. If we look at the facts behind the headlines, we can see how the fear instinct systematically distorts what we see of the world. Frightening and dangerous are two different things. Something frightening poses a perceived risk. Something dangerous poses a real risk. Paying too much attention to what is frightening rather than what is dangerous creates a tragic drainage of energy in the wrong directions. It makes a terrified junior doctor think about nuclear war when he should be treating hypothermia, and it makes whole populations focus on earthquakes and crashing planes and invisible substances when millions are dying from diarrhea and sea floors are becoming underwater deserts. The risk something poses to you does not depend on how scared it makes you feel, but on a combination of two things, how dangerous is it? And how much are you exposed to it? When you are afraid, you see the world differently. Make as few decisions as possible until the panic has subsided. Calculate the risks and remember that the most frightening things are not necessarily the riskiest. The world cannot be understood without numbers, and it cannot be understood with numbers alone. It is instinctive to look at a lonely number and misjudge its importance. It is also instinctive to misjudge the importance of a single instance or an identifiable victim. These two tendencies are the two key aspects of the size instinct. For example, when people are asked questions about global proportions, they constantly say about 20% of people are having their basic needs met. The correct answer in most cases is close to 80%. Proportion of children vaccinated is at 88%. Proportion of people with electricity is 85%. Proportion of girls in primary school is 90%. The use of numbers that sound enormous, together with constant images of individual suffering presented by the charities and the media, distort people's view of the world and they systematically underestimate all these proportions and all this progress. The size instinct directs our limited attention and resources toward those individual instances or identifiable victims, those concrete things right in front of our eyes. Today, there are robust data sets for making comparisons on a global scale, and they show, for example, that it is not doctors and hospital beds that save children's lives in countries on levels 1 and 2. Beds and doctors are easy to count and politicians love to inaugurate buildings. But almost all the increased child survival is achieved through preventive measures outside hospitals by local nurses, midwives, and well-educated parents. Especially mothers, the data shows that half the increase in child survival in the world happens because the mothers can read and write. More children now survive because they don't get ill in the first place. 
Trained midwives assist their mothers during pregnancy and delivery. Nurses immunize them. They have enough food, their parents keep them warm and clean, people around them wash their hands, and their mothers can read the instructions on that jar of pills. So, if you are investing money to improve health on level 1 or 2, you should put it into primary schools, nurse education, and vaccinations. Big impressive looking hospitals can wait. To control the size instinct, get things in proportion. Recognize when a lonely number seems impressive, and remember that you could get the opposite impression if it were compared with or divided by some other relevant number. Big numbers always look big. Single numbers on their own are misleading and should make you suspicious. Always look for comparisons. Ideally, divide by something. Have you been given a long list? Look for the few largest items and deal with those first. They are quite likely more important than all the others put together. Amounts and rates can tell very different stories. Rates are more meaningful, especially when comparing between different sized groups. In particular, look for rates per person when comparing between countries and regions. Misleading generalizations and stereotypes act as a kind of shorthand for the media, providing quick and easy ways to communicate. The gap instinct divides the world into us and them, and the generalization instinct makes us think of them as all the same. Wrong generalizations are mind blockers for all kinds of understanding. Factfulness comes from recognizing when a category is being used in an explanation, and remembering that categories can be misleading. We can't stop generalization and we shouldn't even try. What we should try to do is to avoid generalizing incorrectly. To correct the generalization instinct, question your categories. Look for differences within groups, especially when the groups are large. Look for ways to split them into smaller, more precise categories. Look for similarities across groups. If you find striking similarities between different groups, consider whether your categories are relevant. But do not assume that what applies for one group applies for another. Beware of the majority. The majority just means more than half. Ask whether it means 51%, 99% or something in between. Beware of vivid examples. Vivid images are easier to recall but they might be the exception rather than the rule. Assume people are not idiots. When something looks strange, be curious and humble. Check for the smartness of the solution they have provided. Many things appear to be constant just because the change is happening slowly, but small, slow changes gradually add up to big changes. Slow change is still change. Control the destiny instinct by keeping track of gradual improvements. A small change every year can translate to a huge change over decades. Update your knowledge. Some knowledge go out of date quickly. Technology, countries, cultures, and religions are constantly changing. You can track changes in values by talking to your grandparents to see how their values differ from yours. Collect examples of cultural change. Challenge the idea that today's culture must also have been yesterday's, and will also be tomorrow's. Political ideology and professional opinions are responsible for the single perspective instinct when it comes to understanding the world. Being intelligent, being good with numbers, being well-educated, or even winning a Nobel Prize, is not a shortcut to global factual knowledge. Experts are only experts within their field. Ideologues, like experts and activists, can become fixated on their one idea or one solution, with even more harmful outcomes. The absurd consequences of focusing fanatically on a single idea, like free markets or equality, instead of on measuring performance and doing what works are obvious to anyone who spends much time looking at the realities of life in Cuba and the United States.
Factfulness is recognizing that a single perspective can limit your imagination, and remembering that it is better to look at problems from many angles to get a more accurate understanding and find practical solutions. To control the single perspective instinct, get a toolbox, not a hammer. Test your ideas. Don't only collect examples that show how excellent your favorite ideas are. Have people who disagree with you test your ideas and find their weaknesses. Don't claim expertise beyond your field. Be humble about what you don't know. Be aware, too, of the limits of the expertise of others. If you are good with a tool, you may want to use it too often. If you have analyzed a problem in depth, you can end up exaggerating the importance of that problem or of your solution. Remember that no one tool is good for everything. If your favorite idea is a hammer, look for colleagues with screwdrivers, wrenches, and tape measures. Be open to ideas from other fields. The world cannot be understood without the numbers, and it cannot be understood with numbers alone. Love numbers for what they tell you about real lives. Beware of simple ideas and simple solutions. History is full of visionaries who used simple utopian visions to justify terrible actions. Welcome complexity. Combine ideas. Compromise. Solve problems on a case-by-case -case basis. The blame instinct drives us to attribute more power and influence to individuals than they deserve, for bad or good. For example, Mao was undoubtedly an extraordinarily powerful figure whose actions had direct consequences for one billion people. But his infamous one-child policy had less influence on birth rates than is commonly thought. The Pope is also credited with enormous influence over the sexual behavior of the one billion Catholics in the world. However, despite the clear condemnation of the use of contraception by several successive popes, the statistics show that contraceptive use is 60% in Catholic-majority countries, compared with 58% in the rest of the world. To control the blame instinct, resist finding a scapegoat. Recognize when a scapegoat is being used and remember that blaming an individual often steals the focus from other possible explanations and blocks our ability to prevent similar problems in the future. Look for cause, not villains. When something goes wrong, don't look for an individual or a group to blame. Accept that bad things can happen without anyone intending them to. Instead, spend your energy on understanding the multiple interacting causes, or system, that created the situation. Look for systems, not heroes. When someone claims to have caused something good, ask whether the outcome might have happened anyway, even if that individual had done nothing. Give the system some credit. The urgency instinct makes us want to take immediate action in the face of a perceived imminent danger. The call to action makes you think less critically, decide more quickly, and act now. You need to hesitate and think clearly. Take small steps. A decision may feel urgent but it rarely is. The urgency instinct activates the other instincts and shuts down your analysis. Take a breath. Ask for more time and more information. It's rarely now or never. Insist on the data. If something is urgent and important, it should be measured. Beware of data that is relevant but inaccurate, or accurate but irrelevant. Only relevant and accurate data is useful. Any prediction about the future is uncertain. Be wary of predictions that fail to acknowledge that. Insist on a full range of scenarios, never just the best or worst case. Ask how often such predictions have been right before. Be wary of drastic action. Ask what the side effects will be. Ask how the idea has been tested. Step-by-step -step practical improvements, and evaluation of their impact, are less dramatic but usually more effective. Conclusion
Fighting ignorance and spreading a fact-based worldview can be frustrating sometimes but it is ultimately inspiring and joyful. It is useful and meaningful to learn about the world as it really is. It is deeply rewarding to try to spread this knowledge to other people. It is indeed exciting to start to understand the difficulty in spreading this knowledge and changing people's worldview. It is difficult but not impossible for everyone to have a fact-based worldview one day. There is hope because a fact-based worldview is more useful for navigating life and it is more comfortable than the dramatic worldview. It creates less stress and hopelessness whereas the dramatic worldview is so terrifying and negative. A fact-based worldview helps us to see that the world is not as bad as it seems and it helps us to see what we have to do to keep making it better. How can you use factfulness in your everyday life, in education, in business, in journalism, in your community or organization, and as an individual citizen?